I ask you to take your Bibles and to turn with me, please, to Revelation chapter 10. Uh, We're going to read together Revelation chapter 10, verses 1 to 11. Uh, That's the portion of Scripture that we're going to be looking at today. Please keep your Bibles open as we uh, consider this passage together. Let's read from chapter 10, verse 1. Then I saw... Another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. But that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. And, I, and, and it will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I'd eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Well, this is God's word. And we have already prayed that he would add his blessing to it this morning. So we resume our series in our study in Revelation today. And, and despite all the complexities of dealing with this book, all the dramatic symbolism and apocalyptic genre and varied interpretations, I do hope, and I've been praying, that we are all beginning to grow in our appreciation for the wonder of God's word and how the the book of Revelation is not some strange optional extra that's being tagged on to the end of our Bibles, um, but is absolutely integral to the the whole storyline of redemption from beginning to end, a, a story which centers on the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and the salvation of his people from every tribe and nation and language and tongue. I also hope that our diagram that I gave you at the, the beginning um, is, is helping to, to reveal something of the beauty of the structure of this book. As, as John reveals in seven parallel visions the unfolding of God's purposes in the world, especially focusing on this entire period known as the last days or, or the church age, the period between the first and the second coming of Jesus. 
And something of the beauty of this structure is found in these seven repeating cycles of Revelation, where we see that each one ends with the end of the world, uh, as Jesus returns to judge the wicked and to bring about the, the final day of judgment. These repeating uh, visions of the final judgment are all in the, the yellow blocks on, on the right-hand side of each vision. But what you will see today is that just prior to the, the yellow block at the end of our, um, oopsie, sorry, let me go back, I pressed the wrong button. Um, there's, in this yellow block at the, at the end of the seven trumpets, remember we're in the middle of the seven trumpets at the moment, we've looked at the first six, and just before we get to the seventh trumpet, uh, there is an interlude. There's a pause in the vision where, where John is showed something very special about God's purposes for his people, God's purposes for us during this age of tribulation and, and persecution and suffering and judgment. So we've already actually seen this in the, the second cycle of visions. When we looked at the seven seals over here, the vision of heaven and the seven seals, we got to the fifth seal, and before we got to the end, the sixth and seventh final judgment seal, there was an interlude, there was a pause. And we saw that wonderful chapter seven, you'll see on your diagram, that was the chapter where the church on earth was sealed, the 144,000, so that they were not harmed by the judgment that was being poured out upon the earth as the seals were open. And we saw the church in heaven worshiping God around the throne. And then after that interlude, John returned to the yellow block, uh, and he returned to the focus of the second vision as the seventh seal brought about the final judgment of the wicked and the end of the world. And now last time we started the third cycle of visions, the, the seven trumpets of judgment and warning in chapters eight and nine. And we saw God's judgment against the land and against the sea and against the rivers and against the sky. Then we saw the fifth a trumpet announcing this woe of demonic torment as that army of satanic locusts, demonic locusts were released to torment those on the earth who had not been sealed by the name of God on their foreheads. And then the sixth trumpet sounded and that was the woe of God's judgment to bring death upon this earth to those who disobey him and who do not repent. And so we would expect then after the sixth trumpet to move on in chapter 10 to the seventh trumpet being blown and the final judgment of the wicked and the end of the world. But instead we have again an interlude, a pause, a pause for God's people to be strengthened, for God's people to be encouraged in this world in the midst of all the judgment of God against sin and wickedness. And so the interlude is going to last two weeks, chapter 10 this week, chapter 11 up to verse 14 next week, as people, uh, the people of God find a great hope and purpose uh, in this broken world as we wait in anticipation for the return of Jesus. And so I've made a small change in my diagram. I took chapter 10 verses 1 to 11. It's currently sitting in your yellow block. Um, I've moved it out of the yellow block into this interlude that is part of chapter 10 and 11 that is for the people of God during this time, and I'll send out a revised version. I'm quite impressed that we only 
have made one change so far. Um, after 10 weeks in Revelation, um, there might be some more tweaks along the way. Uh, but chapter 10 and 11 together form this interlude uh, to encourage the people of God. And then just for completion, you're going to see the same pattern of an interlude occurring again in the fourth vision, just before the final judgment is announced at the end of the fourth cycle. We're going to see verses, uh, chapter 14, verse 1 to 13, um, as an interlude of encouragement. And again in the sixth cycle of vision, just prior to the final judgment of Jesus on the white throne, um, we're going to see chapter 19, verse 1 to 10, as another interlude. And, and all of these interludes form a unit. They have a, a common purpose, which is to really reaffirm the whole point of the book of Revelation, namely that the Lamb wins and those who belong to the Lamb will conquer and will reign with Him. And so today we come to chapter 10 uh, under the heading of the big angel, with a little scroll. And then I do trust, and I've been praying this week, that, that this portion of God's Word will be as much an encouragement to us today as it was to those original seven churches um, to whom John first wrote this book. And so as we enter this interlude of encouragement this morning, I want us firstly to find great comfort in the fact that our God is big in verses 1 to 3. Let me read those verses again. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. His face was like the sun. His legs were like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. And when he called out, the seven thunders sounded. So as we've done with, with all the, the visions that John has received so far, we need to firstly just kind of absorb the vision, just absorb what John sees, and then we need to remember that it is a vision. It's, it's a symbol, it's a picture, and then secondly move on to ask, well, what is the symbolism of this vision meant to be teaching us? And so the vision is this, John sees this mighty angel coming down out of heaven. It's, it's a magnificent, glorious angel, huge in size and radiance, and, and in his hand he's holding a, a little scroll that is open, and as he descends he sets his right foot on the seas and his left foot on the land, and then he cries out with a loud voice. We told the, the voice like the roaring of a lion, and as soon as he roars, there are seven thunders which sound. And so we need to then start with the identity of this angel. Who is this mighty angel? And, and I've already let the cat out of the bag because I believe that, that this angel is none other than the angel of the Lord, Yahweh, the angel of Yahweh. And we encounter the angel of the Lord many times in Scripture, and we know that these are called theophanies. These are representations of Jesus Christ himself. So I'm holding this morning that this mighty angel is Jesus. I want to say, though, that we cannot be dogmatic on this. Um, and yet, even the commentators who argue that this angel that we've just read about is not Jesus, they all admit that this angel is so glorious, he's so divine-like, that he is undoubtedly some higher order of angel who is very directly associated with and representative of Jesus. 
I actually found one commentator who in the first part of his commentary explained that this couldn't be Jesus, um, and then later on kept referring to him as Jesus. Um, So that's how close this connection seems to be between this angel and Jesus. But I would like to show you why I think this angel is symbolic of Jesus Christ. Firstly, this is not the the first time that we've encountered a a Christ-like angel in Revelation, because at the beginning of the first interlude uh, of encouragement in chapter 7, that was the passage of the sealing of the 144,000, we saw an angel ascending from the rising of the sun. And we saw that that angel held the seal of the living God, and he commanded the four angels who were about to bring destruction on the earth to wait until he had sealed the people of God on their foreheads. No harm was to be done until God's people were sealed. And back in that message, I proposed that this angel that John had seen, the one who had power to hold back the angels of destruction, the one who executed the sealing of the church, could only be Jesus Christ. And so it's, it's fitting then uh, in the pattern and the symmetry of Revelation that at the beginning of this second interlude of encouragement, we see that this mighty angel here is Jesus Christ as well. But there's more. And, and I think let's just consider the, the description of the angel which John sees. Just glance over those verses. <clears throat> Excuse me. He's called a mighty angel. We are told he comes down from heaven wrapped in a cloud. He has a rainbow over his head. His face shines like the sun. He has legs like pillars of fire. He has an open scroll in his hand. He stands with his two feet straddling the land and the sea, and he roars like a lion. Now, every one of those individual descriptions that I've just mentioned of this mighty angel is either directly associated with Jesus in Revelation itself or the rest of the New Testament, or is associated with Yahweh and the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. And so collectively, there are seven or maybe eight descriptions here all pointing us to the fact that this mighty angel is none other than than Jesus Christ, the angel of the Lord. And so with this incredible vision of this mighty angel before us, we need to ask then, what is this vision of Jesus meant to convey to us? And surely at its most simplest level, it's this, our God is big. Jesus Christ, who who appeared to John in chapter 1, with very similar terminology, by the way, is the one who also declares to John in Revelation, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the first and the last. I am the ruler of the kings of the earth, and I have the keys of death and Hades. This vision of Jesus towering above the earth, standing as it were, in dominion. That's what the two feet represent, standing on the, on the sea, standing on the land. It's, it's a picture of dominion and sovereignty. This is a vision of the sovereignty and the power of God over all that is taking place. Remember chapter 10 is, is in the middle of these seven trumpets. We've had six trumpets of, of destruction and, and death and pain and persecution and, and torment. And there's a seventh one coming. And in the middle of of all of these trumpets of judgment, we have this picture of Jesus standing straddled over the earth. 
everything that is taking place as the trumpets are being blasted are taking place under his divine control and purpose. All the satanic activity on the earth is governed by Jesus. Even the legions of Satan that bring death to a third of humanity is precisely determined and purposed by our sovereign God. Our God is big. And Jesus wants John on the Isle of Patmos, a prisoner for Christ. He wants the seven churches suffering persecution and death. He wants all the saints across history, those in Russia and Ukraine and Syria and North Korea and China. And he wants you and me as his people in Johannesburg to be encouraged that he is big that he is ruling and he is reigning over this world and everything is headed by his divine purpose and control to the final blowing of the seventh trumpet which is about to come. So in the second place today, I want us to also be encouraged by the reality that our God is faithful in verses 4 to 7. If you look at the end of verse 3, after the mighty angel calls out like a roaring lion, we are told that the seven thunders sounded. Now, this is most likely a reference to another, another series of God's judgment on the earth. We've already seen God's judgment in the seven seals. We're now in the middle of the seven trumpets. Later on, we're going to see the seven bowls of God's wrath, all seven symbols of God's complete judgment on the earth. And here, John receives another vision of the seven thunders. Seven, again, speaking of completeness or, or fullness of God's judgment against the wicked. And as John hears the seven thunders, and he's about to write down what they've spoken, because remember he was told to write down everything that he saw and heard, so he's being obedient and faithful here. As he's about to write down what the seven thunders spoke, we are told that John was stopped. A voice from heaven tells John to seal up what the seven thunders have spoken, he may not write it down. Now, there has been great speculation over the years of church history as to what these seven thunders said. And if you read anything about that, I want you to know that all it is is speculation. Because to try and figure out what the seven thunders said is to miss the whole point. God said to John, do not write it down. The revelation of the seven thunders is not for human consumption. It is to be sealed up. What a timeless reminder this is to, to all those YouTube end time prophets who claim to be able to tell you with very intricate diagrams and detailed timelines exactly which event in world history aligns with God's prophetic timeline. So that they claim to be able to pinpoint with extreme accuracy details and, and events on the scenes of world history. And as many have tried to do over the years, have claimed even to predict the exact date on which Jesus will return. At its very simplest level, Revelation 10 verse 4 should shut the mouths of anyone who thinks that they have all the answers. Because unless you have heard what the seven thunders said, you do not have the full picture. 
No, instead of spending so much time trying to pinpoint details and events and, and times of the end, I think this is a reminder to go back to Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29, which says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. There is so much that God has revealed to us. Everything we need for salvation and, and life and godliness through our knowledge of Christ. But there is plenty that God has chosen not to reveal to us. Even Google doesn't know about these secret things of the Lord. And the voices of the seven thunders are a reminder of this. The book of Revelation has given us much about God's purposes, God's activity in the world. He's judging the wicked. He's securing his people. But Revelation is not meant to be a detailed timeline of events. It's not the whole picture. And so we should not step out beyond Scripture and think that we can know everything that God is doing or will still do. God said to John, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And so here's our encouragement in the second point. It's God who's controlling history. It's God who is faithful to his word. Even though certain things are secret, things are hidden from our sight and understanding, God is accomplishing all that he has purposed. He doesn't need you and me to figure out things in order for him to accomplish his purposes. Listen to how John's vision reveals the unwavering faithfulness of God to his word and to his purposes. Look at verse 5. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, the sea and what is in it. What did he swear? that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the, the trumpet to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. John wants us to see two things here about the faithfulness of God. Firstly, that God is faithful because of who he is, and secondly, that God is faithful because his word is true. Notice in verse 5, John reminds us again of this mighty angel, his sovereignty, by referring to him as the one, just in case we've forgotten, the one who is standing on the land and on the sea. And he raises his right hand as a person would do in a court of law to testify as a matter of, as to, to something as a matter of truth. And what does the angel do as he swears an oath before God Almighty, the one who created heaven and earth, he swears that the end is about to come, that there would be no more delay, that when the seventh angel blows his trumpet, the final purposes of God to bring about the end of this age will be fulfilled. Now, just an aside here, in case you're wondering, there, those people who say that this mighty angel is not Jesus, they use this verse as one of their main arguments, that, that if Jesus is God, it does not make sense that Jesus would, would take a vow or swear an oath by God. 
But that's wrong because that's exactly what God does in Genesis, in his covenant with Abraham. The writer to the Hebrews explains this to us in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13. When God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. And so here too we see Jesus making an oath by God himself that he is faithful and he will accomplish his purposes. The mystery of God will be fulfilled. This is exactly how the writer to the Hebrews encouraged them and encourages us. He goes on to say, for people, we swear by something greater than ourselves and in all our disputes an oath. An oath that's sworn by this greater being is what seals the matter for confirmation. So God, desiring to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose. In other words, his faithfulness. How does God show his faithfulness to us? He guarantees it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. That's what John wants us to see here in chapter 10, that God the Son takes an oath by God the Father in which it is impossible for God to lie, that there will be no more delay when the seventh trumpet is sounded, the mystery of God will be fulfilled. And so too for us today, what an encouragement. We who have fled to Jesus for refuge, we have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us because our God is faithful. But we also see that John wants us to see that God is faithful because his word is true. The certainty of this mystery of God being fulfilled John says, is according to the word which he had declared to his servants, the prophets. So here we must understand that that what is being guaranteed, what is being about to be fulfilled, is not something new. It's not something secret and, and mystical and mysterious in the way we think of a mystery these days, that we've got to try and figure it out. No, the mystery of God that he's talking about is clearly prophesied in the Old Testament and explained in the New. Paul tells us in Colossians 2 verse 2 that the mystery of God is Christ in whom are hidden all the the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Romans he tells us that the gospel of our salvation is the mystery of God which has been revealed in Christ. In Ephesians 1, we are told that the mystery of God is that in the fullness of time, God would unite all things in heaven and on earth to himself in Christ. In Ephesians 3 verse 9, we are told that the mystery of the gospel is that God's salvation includes the Gentiles. And in Ephesians 5 verse 32, Paul tells us that the mystery of God is clearly understood in Christ's marriage relationship with the church. But we also need to understand that in the context of the mystery of the gospel, it does not just refer to the salvation of God's people, but also to the judgment of God's enemies. Can I show you this from just one Old Testament example? Please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 61. I'm not going to bring it up. Uh, Isaiah chapter 61. Right at the end of, of Isaiah's book of prophecy, as he's looking forward towards the end of the world, 
He starts to prophesy about the coming of the Messiah. And we read in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. You see the verse, chapter 2. 61 verse 2, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. So as Isaiah looks forward to the coming of the Messiah, he sees two clear aspects that the Messiah would bring. There is this proclamation of the gospel to the the poor and the captives, the, the setting free of those who were bound. In short, there is the proclamation of the year of the Lord's favor. But at the same time, there is another aspect There is a day of vengeance of our God, the total destruction of God's enemies. And so what Isaiah sees as one future event, the New Testament tells us actually took place in two parts. The first coming of Jesus introduces the year, the symbolic figurative year of the Lord's favor, the season of the proclamation of the gospel, the salvation of captives and prisoners and setting free of those who are bound. But the second part of Isaiah's vision was delayed, delayed until the return of Jesus when the day of vengeance will be poured out on his enemies. Now this dual aspect of Isaiah's uh, vision could not be more clearly confirmed than by Jesus himself. Turn ahead in your Bibles now to Luke's gospel. Luke chapter four. This is the account of Jesus going into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he's handed the scroll of Isaiah. And we are told in Luke chapter four that Jesus specifically found the place in Isaiah 61 and he read what did Jesus read Luke 4 verse 18 the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor he sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and then he rolled up the scroll gave it back to the attendant and sat down And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. See what Jesus did? He stopped halfway through verse 2 of Isaiah chapter 61. The first coming of Jesus introduced the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus is clear. Today this scripture is fulfilled. I'm here. I'm the one who proclaims the gospel. But the missing half of verse 2, the day of the Lord's vengeance, is still to come. It's delayed. And so as we come back then to Revelation chapter 10 verse 7, we see that Jesus takes an oath before the, the seventh angel blows his trumpet and he says there will be no more delay. The mystery of God in its fullness will be fulfilled. The year of the Lord's gospel favor, the the church age, the, the proclamation of the gospel to all nations, that will be finished. And the day of the Lord's vengeance will come. 
Everything God has promised through his servants, the prophets, will be fulfilled when the angel blows the seventh trumpet. God's word is faithful. It will accomplish every detail which God has purposed. What an encouragement then to know this morning that our God is big and that our God is faithful. His word is true. It will accomplish the purpose for which he sends it out. But in the third place then, I want us to see this morning as well that his word is bittersweet. Bittersweet. We move on to this uh, strange passage in verses 8 to 10 where John is instructed to take the little scroll from the hand of the angel and when he does so, the angel tells him to eat the scroll. And although it's going to be sweet to his mouth, it will make his stomach bitter. And John does as he's told, and and it's exactly like that. The the scroll was sweet in his mouth like honey, but it gave him terrible indigestion. So let's start with the scroll. What does the scroll represent? Well, the word used here, biblion, uh, is used over 20 times in Revelation to refer to a scroll or a book. And so I think in its simplest form, in its most general form, uh, it's referring to the word of God. The decrees of God. It's, it could simply be a reference to the scriptures generally. Psalm 119, verse 103, a favorite verse for us here at Honeyridge, speaks of God's word being sweet to our souls, sweeter than honey in the honeycomb. But there does seem to be a strong case to be made for the fact that this scroll in the hand of Jesus is the same scroll which Jesus took from the right hand of God the Father. The scroll which was sealed with seven seals, but that vision is past now. The seven seals have been opened. And the scroll which previously we said revealed the the plan of God both to redeem his people and to execute judgment seems to be very relevant in the context of what we are reading. All that will take place between the first and the second coming of Christ. Now there is a lot of debate about about why this scroll is called a little scroll. My simple answer is because Jesus is big. It it, it really could be as simple as that, that. From John's perspective, as he looks at this vision of Jesus standing straddled across the earth, the scroll in his hand is tiny because our God is big. The same scroll which the lamb standing had taken in chapter 5 is now the scroll in the hand of the majestic Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords. And so the scroll appears little uh, in his mighty hands. And I think we're in the right track there because look at verse 8. When God speaks to John about the scroll, he simply refers to it as the scroll. God doesn't say, go and take the little scroll. God says, go and take the scroll. The same word used in chapter 5, but John's description of it is that it was a little scroll. So whether it's the exact same scroll as chapter 5 or not, I don't think it really matters. What is clear is that the scroll represents the word of God. It's the decrees of God. It's the plans of God's redemption and judgment. And John is told to eat it. We'll get to that in a minute. Now, we just also must see a parallel here between the mystery of God, which will be fulfilled. Remember, the, the mystery of God contains both salvation and judgment. And here we see the word of God that he must eat is both sweet and bitter. 
The mystery of the gospel is the good news that's announced to those who are being saved. And the gospel is also the bad news of judgment to those who reject it. And so as John eats the scroll, I think that implies his his inward digestion of the word of God. He's reading it, meditating on it, processing it. We find that it is sweet to his mouth, but it is bitter to his stomach. And I, I think... This is something we really need to be thinking more carefully about as Christians as we consider our attitude to the word of God. God's word is always sweet to the believer's heart. Even the parts of God's word that are hard, hard to process, hard to apply, hard to understand, they are sweet to us because we know that God's word is perfect. It's always right and true. We know that it's for our good. But at the same time, the word of God, which is food for our souls as believers, is a message of bitterness and judgment for those who do not believe. Now this picture of eating the scroll, as strange as it might seem to us, is actually not so strange at all, because it's taken straight from Ezekiel chapter 2. So let me take you back to the Old Testament again. Please turn in your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 2. And um, let's see if the Old Testament context helps us to understand what John is describing. And I will bring this reading up for you to to follow along uh, on the screen as well. Ezekiel chapter 2 verse 8. But you, son of man, speaking to Ezekiel, this is God speaking, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And when I looked, Ezekiel says, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it, and he spread it before me. It was an open scroll. It had writing on the front and on the back. Does that ring a bell? It's the scroll from chapter 5. And there were written on it the words of lamentation and mourning and woe. And he said to me, son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat the scroll and go and speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me the scroll to eat. And he said to me, son of man, feed your belly with the scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. And he said to me, son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak my words to them. For you are not sent to a people of foreign speech and hard language, but to the house of Israel, not to many peoples of foreign speech and hard language whose words you cannot understand. Surely if, if I sent you to such, they would listen to you. But the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you, for they are not willing to listen to me, because all the house of Israel have a hard forehead and a stubborn heart." Behold, I have made your face as hard as their faces and your forehead as hard as their foreheads. Like emery harder than flint, I have made your forehead. Fear them not, nor be dismayed at their looks, their disdain, for they are a rebellious house. Moreover, he said to me, son of man, all my words that I shall speak to you, receive in your heart, hear with your ears, and go to the exiles, to your people, and speak to them, and say to them, thus says the Lord God, whether they hear or refuse to hear. Now you might be wondering, I thought this was an interlude of of encouragement. How is this encouraging? Well, it is. It's the encouragement for God's people to take his word, to digest it, and then do what with it? 
proclaim it, to keep on proclaiming it. And we'll, we'll see this expanded next week in chapter 11. But for today, our passage ends in verse 11 with John being told, this word of God must be proclaimed. This word that comes to us from the hand of God, this gospel of salvation, it's sweet to those who believe sweet to those who obey, but to those who reject it, to those who disobey its call to, to repentance and holiness, it's a word of bitter judgment. It's a word that turns the stomach. But our job is to proclaim it to all people until Jesus returns. Look at verse 11. Immediately after eating the scroll, as with Ezekiel, I was told you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Ezekiel was given this bitter message to proclaim. It was a message of lamentation and mourning and woe. Sounds like my wheat picks in the morning. Um, and he was told up front that this preaching would be rejected. The people would, would be hardened and, and stubborn in their rejection of it. But here's the encouragement. I love this. God said to Ezekiel, as hard and as stubborn as they are going to be in rejecting it, the more you digest my word, the more you delight in my word, the more you listen with your ears and, and receive my word in your heart, I'm going to make you more hard-headed and more stubborn than them in proclaiming it. Nothing will distract you from your mission to go to them and say, thus says the Lord God, whether they listen or not. I've seen this time and time again in my life as a Christian, particularly in pastoral ministry, of godly parents who've proclaimed the word of the Lord to their children, and their children were hard-headed and stubborn, but the parents were more hard-headed and stubborn in their faithfulness to continue proclaiming the gospel of God's grace and salvation to their children. So what an encouragement this is to us today as, as God's people in this broken and corrupt world. It's a world filled with stubborn people, hard-headed people, a world which is corrupt and hostile to the gospel and hostile to us as Christians. What an encouragement it is to know that we have a big God, a God who is reigning sovereignly over all things. We have a faithful God who is trustworthy and his purposes are sure. We have a God whose word is true and it offers a message of both sweet salvation and bitter judgment. And we have a God who calls us to proclaim this message to all people. Everyone needs this message. Some will listen and be saved. Some will give you funny looks and they will reject you and your message. But we are called to proclaim to all. So I want to just close, you by, re close by reminding you of, of that time in John chapter 6. Jesus said to his disciples, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, says Jesus, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. We are told after saying this that the Jews were offended at Jesus' words. And many who had been his disciples turned away and they no longer followed him. 
And so Jesus turned to the 12 and he said to them, do you also want to leave me? To which Simon Peter replied, where else can we go, Lord? Where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? If so, then you've been called by the mighty Jesus today, our big and faithful God, to proclaim him and his great salvation to everyone that you meet. Let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you this morning for both the encouragement and the challenge in your word. The encouragement to see you for who you are, to see your word for what it really is, to see this world as a world that is divided between those who are saved and those who are judged. We are not the ones to judge, Lord. We are the ones to bring the message of the word of God, that salvation is available today and that soon, when the seventh trumpet blows, the day of vengeance of our God will come and with it the judgment and the eternal destruction of the wicked. Lord, make us your faithful ambassadors, we pray. Cause us to be hard-headed and stubborn in our proclamation of the, world, uh, of the word. We are so quick to, to get any small rebuttal and then to just go back into our shells and never speak again. No, Lord, cause us, we pray, as you did with Ezekiel, to be bold for Christ, not because we are bold, but because the word we proclaim is faithful and true. And as we do that, may you be pleased to accomplish the purpose for which you have sent your word out, for we know that it will not return to you void. Cause us to be greatly encouraged in your sovereignty and your faithfulness and your purposes, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.